Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here again with you this week with John Mitchell. We're going to be talking about Week 12 action, everything that happened in a really exciting week that featured all 25 of the top 25 teams playing. So, offered plenty of space for shakeups in the polls and in the selection committee rankings. Then, in our second segment, we'll be turning to Week 13, looking at some games against the spread. A quick caveat, we will be looking at these games against the opening line since we're recording a little bit earlier than usual this week. So bear in mind with that, we'll remind you again when we actually get to picking. And then in the final segment, we'll be looking at the garbage we dealt out in week 12, owning up to our mistakes before we give you some upsets and some locks of the week, some food and drink suggestions, and send you on your way. Before we get started, John, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Kind of a somber mood around college football, I think, this week uh, with everything that happened in regards to, you know, Tua Tungavailoa's injury and all that. So obviously that hit close to home for me, but we'll get into that more later. But otherwise, doing pretty well, Zach. Um, excited to be back to talk with you as everything kind of the landscape kind of clears itself and we look like we've got um, a pretty good read on maybe how the playoffs going to shake out and stuff at this point in the season. So just really excited that it's getting to that time of the year and also kind of sad that, you know, we're already getting to late November in college football. Yeah. I was thinking about that as I wrote my binge watch guide last week for Saturday blitz and just looking at the fact that on the one hand, there's still a lot of great action to watch. And on the other hand, two-thirds, about three-quarters of our season is already behind us, and we're drifting ever closer to that long, dismal off-season where we're left with nothing but the ancillary details of football to talk about rather than what's actually happening on a gridiron. But, you know, as, as sad as that is, we do still have some action to talk about, so let's revel in that while we can. Uh a lot of things happened in Week 12, John, certainly. A lot of great wins, a lot of really disappointing losses. Let's start out with the big wins first. In terms of a lot of really great action, what do you think was the absolute biggest win of Week 12? You know, a lot of people, I think, were surprised last week when Georgia was the number four ranked team in the college football playoff rankings just because, you know, when you look at the Bulldogs' resume, they got a couple nice wins, but they also have probably the worst loss of any of the one-loss contenders, dropping a home game to a South Carolina team that, unless they can upset Clemson, they're going to finish 4-8. and eight. So that's, you know, it's not the first time we've seen a, a potential playoff team drop a, a game to a four-win team. Clemson won a national championship a few years ago, losing to Syracuse in the regular season, who was also a four-win team. So it's not necessarily an unforgivable sin, but when you have that log jam of one-loss contenders, it was a little surprising to see the Bulldogs get the benefit of the doubt over the likes of Alabama, Oregon, Utah, even Oklahoma, and even ahead of some undefeated teams last week, you know, like Baylor and Minnesota. Um, but, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Georgia is a really good football team. They've been playing much better since that kind of wake-up call loss at home to the Gamecocks. 
um, rolling to beat Kentucky, beating Florida in a huge SEC East showdown, shutting out Missouri, and then jumping out to a 21 to nothing lead on Saturday against Auburn and then hanging on at the end to, to preserve a seven-point road win. And we know how much a house of horrors Jordan-Hare Stadium has been for so many teams over the years. Georgia in particular, we're not that far removed from the, you know, miracle at Jordan-Hare in 2013 when uh, Nick Marshall threw the pass deep to Ricardo Lewis that got tipped on a fourth and forever and caught by Lewis for a touchdown to just stun the Bulldogs. Um, and the last time Georgia went there in 2017, they were an undefeated number one team in the college football playoff rankings and got thoroughly beaten by Jarrett Stidham and company down there. So it's a difficult place to play. Georgia hasn't had a great his- recent history of playing there. Uh, but the fact that they were really dominant for most of that game, you know, they like I said, jumped off to the 21 nothing lead. Bo Nix could really do nothing against the Georgia defense. And I think the Bulldogs continue to prove that they're a really well-rounded football team. I was impressed by the fact that DeAndre Swift was able to go for 100 yards against a really good Auburn front. Obviously, Jake Fromm still looks kind of shaky when he plays the better defenses. He was only 13 of 28 for 110 yards, but he did throw three touchdown passes. Um, So obviously he made some plays when he had to. But it'll be interesting, I think, to see what Fromm's able to do because this sets up, you know, the Georgia-LSU matchup in the SEC championship game that's most likely going to be a quarterfinal matchup. Georgia wins that obviously be in the playoff, but also if Georgia wins, that could open up a whole wave of possibilities because a one loss LSU with their only loss um, coming to Georgia in the SEC title game probably doesn't fall out of the playoff either. You got to think they're probably still going to end up in. They probably have the best resume of the one loss contenders, but I was impressed with how Georgia played. We both picked, I believe you also picked Auburn to win last week. I can't remember for sure, but I, I certainly did. Um, And Georgia really came out and removed any doubt pretty early in that game. Yeah, I did also have Auburn in that game. That was one of my misses of the week. And Georgia was really impressive. At the same time, Auburn acquitted itself well. They really looked like they were fighting for that crazy comeback that we've seen them pull off so many times. Uh, The announcers said during the game that they were looking like they did in the fourth quarter against Oregon. And as somebody who simultaneously hated to have to think about that again, but was hoping that Auburn could do it for the sake of Oregon's strength of schedule, it was it was an odd situation. But in the end, um, I agree with you. Georgia looked really good, especially on defense, taking care of business. In terms of Fromm, I'm... You know, he he is what he is, and at this point, I think Georgia fans are still right to question whether they kept the right quarterback in the end, the way Justin Fields has been playing at Ohio State, but the way that Kirby Smart wants this team to play, he needs a game manager in there. He needs somebody who can protect the ball, take care of business when it needs to be done, can throw effective throws, but doesn't need to be depended on to take the team on his shoulders. And Fromm is the kind of guy with the kind of disposition who can do exactly that. So I think Georgia at this point has has the setup that they need to succeed. And they really showed that in a big top 12 matchup on the road. For me, I think it was another matchup for a top 10 team that that shined as my 
best win of the week. It was Utah at home, 49-3 over UCLA. And the reason this really stuck out for me was the fact that UCLA has been really good in recent weeks. Yes, this is a team that's still fighting for bowl eligibility, but in the end, the Bruins, you know, they won three straight coming into their matchup in Salt Lake City, and they took a 3 nothing lead midway through the first quarter. Looked like they could really trade punches with the Utes. And then they gave up 49 unanswered points. Everything just collapsed for uh, UCLA. Um, Tyler Huntley looked really efficient yet again. Cemented his place as one of the best quarterbacks in the country, going 14 of 18 for 335 yards and a pair of touchdowns, and then adding a rushing touchdown for good measure. Zach Moss looked really great as well. Uh, he posted 200 total yards from scrimmage, 127 rushing with a pair of touchdowns, and then adding four catches for 73 yards. And then the Utah defense. I think we have to seriously consider Utah as a college football playoff contender right now. It, it would not be surprising to see the committee see them as a top four team in the next couple of weeks, even before we go into championship week, because they, they have the combination of the offense and the defense to really scare just about anybody. They held Joshua Kelly, who's looked really great in recent weeks to only 78 yards. They forced Dorian Thompson Robinson to throw a pair of interceptions and they only gave up 269 yards while racking up 536. They basically just doubled up the yardage there. So in all phases of the game, Utah came out and really made a statement for the entire country. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the Utes are another one of those teams. You look at being well-rounded and what they can do. Obviously, Tyler Huntley's a really good quarterback. Uh, his backfield mate, Zach Moss, is fantastic. And that defense is just smothering. Barring Zach, barring a uh, a Georgia upset of LSU in the SEC championship game, it's looking like if Utah and Oregon both take care of business on their way to Santa Clara, that that's also going to be a quarterfinal game for the college football playoff. Uh, both teams likely entering eleven and one, going toe to toe with a spot on the play with the playoff on the line, and that'd be such a great thing for the Pac-12 with as much grief as that conference has taken in recent years as much grief as they've taken this year I mean it wasn't a few weeks ago that everyone was saying their college football playoff hopes were over and dead just a few weeks ago and now they're right in the thick of it and one of the more interesting races and we talked about this in the preseason how interesting the Pac-12 would be this season it's certainly proven to be so I think both Utah and Oregon might be a little bit better than we probably thought in the preseason we were kind of worried that the league might eat itself from the inside out but the Utes and the Ducks, man, have looked both really, really good. And if one of those teams emerges as a 12-1 and Pac-12 champion, it'll be really difficult to leave them out of the playoff. Indeed, yeah. It, it's been one of those seasons where I, I think we need to, to sort of couch things in the right context because outside of Oregon and Utah, the Pac-12 has done exactly what we expected in terms of cannibalizing itself. Other than those two one-loss teams, everybody else has at least four losses right now. So the Pac-12, on one hand, you can see that as a sign of parity. You could have a lot of bowl-eligible teams this year, depending on how these last two weeks shake out. 
and it, it shows that on any given week you have a really tough out. You know, Utah's only loss of the season so far was to a USC team that came out and won forty one seventeen on the road this weekend in the the week twelve finale in Pac twelve after dark action. So Really a great conference, and it, it's interesting to look at those narratives of how we talk about the Pac-12, because you also have a lot of talent out there, and you know we tend to look at the recruiting centers in the Southeast especially, and um, you know also with the Big Ten, but the Pac-12 pulls as much talent as just about anybody besides the SEC, and this is something I looked at in my Sunday morning quarterback this week that was... Um, sort of a revelation for me. You know, I've bought into the exact same narrative as everybody else, and until I actually broke down the numbers and, and you know, charted it and saw it says otherwise, I, I would have bought into the exact same thing. So Pac-12 really hats off to them. They've done an amazing job sort of resurrecting their chances in this race. And shout out to Kyle Whittingham, too, man. Like, one of the most underrated coaches in the country. I mean, he's taken Utah from the Mountain West days and being the um, being a BCS buster back when and now being, you know, a legitimate contender for a national championship at Utah. So just an amazing job he's done there for a lot of years. Yeah, and it's really a testament to the fact that he stuck around and wanted to build that program. You know, he's a Utah guy, wanted to stay close to home, didn't really see the dollar signs as a draw so much as making something sustainable and really building his legacy. Uh, cut in a similar mold to guys like Gary Patterson, I think, in terms of that desire to build and grow a program. On that note, let's shift over to losses, because as great as some of these wins were, some teams took some losses that proved really costly. What did you see as the worst loss of Week 12, John? I'm going to go a bit of a different route on this one than usual, Zach, so bear with me as I go on a bit of a a rant here, um, if you'll indulge such a thing. Um, I think the biggest loss of the week was for college football, and I say that because Tua Tungavailoa's injury just resonates far beyond Alabama football, far beyond the Southeast, far beyond the SEC, and far beyond all that. It's a tremendous loss for college football. Um, Just a devastating thing to happen to one of the most premier players in the game. One of the best singular talents I've ever watched play the sport. I mean, if everything holds at this point, he's taken his last snap, as it certainly seems to be with the um, dislocated hip and the potential um, posterior wall fracture in his hip, which is, you know, unfortunately the Bo Jackson injury that cost him his career. And obviously medical science in the last 30 years has progressed enough that there's certainly potential. But the fact that there's even the th- thought that he might not play football again is super incredibly sad to me. Um, and as things stand right now, he set the record for the highest um, – passer efficiency rating in the history of the sport at this point in time. I mean, no one's ever been a more efficient passer. He completely changed the narrative of Alabama quarterback. So in terms of his impact on Alabama football, he's probably the most impactful player Alabama's had 
since maybe Joe Namath. I mean, honest to God, like that's the type of name you have to pull out when you think about it because he changed the thought from Alabama being a game manager type quarterback system to having a guy like this. Um, and, you know, I a lot of people want to place blame on somebody. So Nick Saban's obviously gotten blame for even having him playing, but Tua was healthy enough to play yesterday. And this injury that happened, as unfortunate as it was, had nothing to do with the previous injuries he's had. It was a freak accident. And that's the, you know, the brutality of the sport that we love so much is that something like this can happen on any given play at any given time. We've seen these kind of devastating injuries before, but it's been a long time, I think, since we've seen a guy as, you know, as much or as big as Tua, I would say, suffer this kind of devastation to his career. You know, the the last guy that I can really remember that resonates was Marcus Lattimore, probably. But I mean, even he, even he, no disrespect to Lattimore, wasn't the type of name value that Tua brought to the sport, you know. So I, I think it's a loss for college football because we don't get to see Tua again. But I also think it's a loss for college football because I think it brings back into the consciousness the the shame that is amateurism. Because when I really start thinking about it too, Zach, it's how much money does Tua Tungavailoa stand to lose if he can't play football anymore? We're talking about 50 to $100 million just down the drain. And how much money has the University of Alabama, how much money has the SEC, how much money has college football as a whole made off of him over the last three years from when he stepped onto the scene in the college football playoff national title game and through that one of the greatest plays in the history of the sport through that touchdown pass to beat Georgia dominated as a sophomore last year, finishing the Heisman runner up, led Alabama back to the national championship game. And then was having another just tremendous year this season and was well on his way to being, if not the number one overall draft pick, a top 10 pick at the absolute worst this season in the 2020 draft. And now that could be out the window. And it's so sad to see. And it really just makes me question even more amateurism. And you and I have had this talk on this podcast a hundred times about amateurism and how these kids should be able to profit on their name, their likeness and their ability. And the fact that that could be taken from Tua just makes me incredibly sad. And I think it's a huge loss for the sport, not just because of his talent, but because of the whole amateurism argument coming back around it just all of this just makes me incredibly sad Zach I I understand when I was watching that game and saw Tua go down the first thing that came to mind for me was Dennis Dixon in 2007 in terms of that Heisman caliber talent you know at that point Dixon was basically leading the Heisman race and I think at this point Tua is you know, we, we you've got Joe Burrow, you've got Jalen Hurts, and you had Tua. And it was those three who were like 1A, 1B, 1C coming into the middle of November. And obviously this pretty much, it eliminates him from the race. Barring, you know, I think you could say if Alabama absolutely were to tank their next two games, I know you hate to think about that nightmare scenario, but bear with me in a really wacky counterfactual for a moment. So they lose their FCS game next week. And then they lose really big in the Iron Bowl. I I think if you see Alabama completely torpedo, you see the value that Tua brought to the table, Heisman voters might actually give it to him in that instance. But that's the only way he's winning it at this point. 
And if he doesn't play football again, you know, with Dixon, obviously, different type of injury. It wasn't as career-threatening as this could potentially be when you're talking about hip injuries like that. Um, But at the same time, just those question marks about not getting to see them on a college field again. That's a... At once, it's a really heartbreaking thing. And at the same time, you want these kids to be healthy and to potentially be able to realize their earning potential down the road. Because they're getting hosed by a system that doesn't let them realize it in real time when they're taking the real risks that we see on the field. And I'm not going to be the type that's going to fault Saban for this. Obviously, you know, you're up by 28 points. It, it, yes, but at the same time, you're on the road in an SEC game, and it's still the first half. It, you know, the second half rolls are... The, the way we usually see these things managed out in any game that's become a blowout where you have a really great quarterback is you play through the first half, you play that first series of the second half, and then you're on the bench for the rest of the game with your helmet off and your hair blowing in the wind, looking really cool on the sidelines. That that's that's the moment you get to have when you when you generate a big lead like that. But it, it wasn't it, it wasn't as though we were playing some exceptional script in keeping him in in the second half or in the second quarter there. So it, it, it's a fluke injury. It's a really unfortunate fluke injury. It's the it's the sort of injury that college football can yield up at any time. It's the sort of injury that any sport can yield up at any time when you get down to it. Any sport where bodies are are coming into contact with one another. This sort of thing could have happened on a soccer pitch. It could have happened in lacrosse. It could have happened on in a hockey rink. There's a lot. It's not exclusive to football, this kind of injury. But it is something that... You know, the odds are it's going to happen sooner or later when you have bodies falling in awkward ways. And unfortunately, it was a really incredibly talented player who had this happen to him. Yeah, and one thing I'll add when people want to talk about maybe Tua shouldn't have been out there when they're up 35-7, there was a similar thing happening with LSU on Saturday against another Mississippi school. They LSU led 31 to seven at the half over Ole Miss, and then Ole Miss scored 30 second half points. With the way Nick Saban saw his defense play the week before against LSU, he's probably not thinking a 35 to seven lead is probably quite enough to be comfortable. As much as the defense had played well in the first half, but I mean you have the the potential for the game to get tighter, and then you've got the thought then, well, two has been sitting on the bench cold. Now I need to bring him back in because you know the game is in doubt. And that would be an even worse situation. So I, I, it's unfortunate that it happened, but you know the decision that Nick made, I think, was completely defensible. I might not have made the decision myself. Maybe I pull him in that situation. But I think also it's easier for us to say sitting hundreds of miles away when we have no inside info from the training staff on Tua's full health, like Nick has. So. You know, it's unfortunate, but like I said, I think the, the biggest loss is, isn't just for Alabama. I think it's a, it's, a huma, it's a humongous loss for the sport itself. I'm totally with you there. And, you know, as I look at my sheet here and look at the worst loss I had written down, it looks pretty pale by comparison. Um, 
But at the same time, let's talk about it. Because we, you know, there was a lot that happened this weekend. And, you know, we could go for another 40 minutes about the nature of, of injuries and everything if we wanted to. But we got a lot on the plate here, everybody. So, Minnesota lost 23-19 to to Iowa. You know, didn't win the Floyd of Rosedale. Headed back empty-handed to Minneapolis from Iowa City. But it was more than just the Floyd of Rosedale that they lost. Any chance that Minnesota had of reaching the college football playoff is out the door after this loss. They bumped up to number eight in the college football playoff rankings after beating Penn State, but they opened at number 17. The committee obviously does not think much about this team at all. And it's... um, you know, no matter what happens from here on out, they can win the Big Ten championship. They could knock off an undefeated Ohio State to win the Big Ten championship, and they're still not making the playoff this year. So, and, and it's really unfortunate, too, because Minnesota, the defense held Iowa to 290 yards of offense. Tanner Morgan and and the, the Gophers' offense racked up 431, outgained, you know, Iowa by half again on offense, but they couldn't put it in the end zone. Tanner Morgan was great, but the ground game couldn't get going, and they became really one-dimensional really quickly, and so Iowa gets to keep the bronze pig for a fifth straight year, but I think beyond this game itself and just beyond the implications to Minnesota, it, it completely opened up the Big Ten West. Like, it eliminated Minnesota's chances of effectively locking up the Big Ten West crown in their spot in in Indianapolis. Now, as long as both Minnesota and Wisconsin win next week, it effectively comes down to the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe as a divisional championship game for the Big Ten West and deciding who gets to play uh, effectively the winner of Ohio State, Penn State, uh, game that we'll be talking about soon enough in the next segment. So all told, um, in terms of just that individual result that happened on the field but reverberated far beyond where, it, you know, just Kinnick Stadium itself, I think Minnesota falling was huge. Yeah, I mean, an unfortunate loss for Minnesota, but like you mentioned, uh, you could look at that as a big win for Wisconsin because now they're right back in the thick of the Big Ten West race coming down to the final weekend of the season, boring massive upsets next week. Wisconsin would have to drop to Purdue, and Minnesota would have to lose to Northwestern, so I don't think either of those things are very likely. Uh, so bad loss for Minnesota, great win for Wisconsin um, while they sat and watched, so yeah, yeah, after beating Nebraska earlier in the day, they just got to, to kick back and see all the cards fall into place for them. I'm certainly happy with the, the results of it all. Well, in terms of biggest surprises, I, I think looking at another close game uh, that I had written down is something we absolutely have to do. Oklahoma was dead in the water. Um down 28 to 3 in the second quarter 31 to 10 at the half just nothing was going right for the Sooners in that first half um you know even after halftime Jalen Hurts had the interception and a fumble before the half he had another fumble after halftime there in the third quarter 
but he also threw four touchdown passes. He also threw for nearly 300 yards. He also led the Sooners yet again in rushing. He had another complete performance that transcended his three turnovers and allowed Oklahoma to score 24 unanswered in the second half. They hit that field goal with a minute 45 remaining, and then Nick Bonito picks off Charlie Brewer with 29 seconds left. As the Bears are driving, they're in Sooners territory when he gets that interception off Brewer. So, you know, I had Baylor winning this 45-41. I don't think it's the absolute worst thing I picked last week because Baylor did cover the spread, but they lost their first game of the year, and... Um, you know, I thought, I, I thought it was going to be close. I thought it would be down to the wire. So I, I, I think what surprised me most was just the manner in which Oklahoma came back in the game. So, yeah, I say this as an Atlanta Falcons fan as well. Uh, 28 to three is the unsafest leave unsafest lead in football. Um, we saw the Falcons a few years ago in the Super Bowl blow that against the Patriots. We saw Michigan State blow it last week against Illinois, and now we saw Baylor blow it this week against Oklahoma. Um, but what a great game. I came away from that game impressed with Baylor. I really expected Oklahoma to kind of flex its muscles and show that they were the best team in the Big 12. But, you know, blowing the big lead aside, Baylor came to play in that game. They showed, I think, everyone in the country that they were a legitimate good football team. I don't think they should drop any in the polls this week because of a three-point loss to Oklahoma because I think they were already pretty underrated based on coming in number 13 in the committee rankings last week despite being 9-0. and I know they've had some close wins, so eventually that you know, close win voodoo was going to flip and they were going to lose one. But, you know, this isn't devastating for the Bears. They're going to get, as long as they handle their business the rest of the season, they're going to get another crack at Oklahoma in the Big 12 title game with revenge on their mind. And, I mean, if the if we're treated as college football fans to a game that's anywhere close to as good as that one was, then that's a, a massive win for the sport. Yeah, Um one question. Do you think if both these teams meet as one-loss teams that it should be a play-in game for the playoff? Honestly, no, unless there's massive chaos beneath them. I don't think Oklahoma or Baylor is one of the four best teams in college football, regardless of whether the fact that they went out. Both teams have looked so shaky at points this season. They both benefited from really close victories. I mean, we're talking about Oklahoma team that came very close to losing to Iowa State last week if the Cyclones would have converted a two-point conversion at the end. We're having a whole different conversation today about the Sooners' spot. So I don't think they're quite there, and I don't think – and Baylor's had a ton of close games. Unless there's just massive chaos, I think the a one-loss Big 12 champion is sitting behind a one-loss Pac-12 champion, um, a one-loss Alabama a one-loss LSU, too, if they happen to lose at some point in the SEC title game or something like that. So I, I really don't think so unless we just see unmitigated chaos over the final couple weekends of the season. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think they'd also factor ahead of a one-loss Clemson, personally, but that would require Clemson to actually lose a game with the schedule that they've had. So how about you? What was your biggest surprise of the weekend? Actually stuck with uh, stuck in Big 12 country myself. I was stunned to see Kansas State lose a home game to West Virginia. This is the same Kansas State team that just a few short weeks ago beat Oklahoma. 
you know, and looked just dominant against the Sooners, had since rolled over Kansas and had lost a game last week, but it was a three-point game to Texas on the road. There's no real shame in that. But then coming back to Manhattan, little the Little Apple, and, and dropping a home game to a West Virginia team that arguably had looked like the worst team in the Big 12 all season long. I mean, they had beaten Kansas on the road, so I guess you could say they were the ninth-best team in the conference. But, I mean, they had not looked competitive very much most of the season. They came close to upsetting Baylor a few weeks ago, but had just gotten rolled over by Texas Tech at home, who's also in the bottom range of the Big 12. So I was absolutely shocked to see. And, you know, great for Neil Brown. He really needed a a signature victory this season. And, you know, say what you will about Kansas State. It's not like they're an elite football team. But going on the road and beating a Kansas State team that had showed a lot of promise so far this year, massive win for West Virginia. And I was just – I was totally stunned by it. I really – wouldn't have envisioned that happening whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's really fair, especially since Kansas or you know Kansas State started coming back. They had the lead, you know, twenty to fourteen going into the fourth quarter, and so it you know West Virginia took the first quarter lead, and it looked like Kansas State just needed to get warmed up, like they were just a little bit sleepy coming into the contest, but. By by the start of the fourth quarter, it looked like they'd figured it back out. You know, they had the lead again. They were running fairly fairly efficiently, and then everything collapses in that fourth quarter as West Virginia scores ten and flips the narrative. So I I, I was really surprised by the way that played out as well, and it made for a really messy picture in terms of the Big Twelve. You know, you had that loss. You had Texas losing as well to Iowa State. Um, Baylor taking their first loss of the year. It really just compressed those entire standings in a really interesting way. Well, before we take our break, let's let's shift our, our minds to individual performances. Um, starting with offense, who did you have for your game ball this week? You know, we talked about him a bit already, and we talked about the mistakes that Jalen Hurts made. You know, the two turnovers in the first half, the fumble on the goal line in the second half, when it that looked like the, the knockout blow for the Sooners at that point of the game. But then Jalen Hurts just did what Jalen Hurts does, right? I mean, he's one of the clutchest quarterbacks in the game. We've seen it time and time again uh, over his career at Alabama and now at Oklahoma. Um, when he's got to make a play, he often times makes that play he put the entire Oklahoma offense on his back as he's done for most of the season Lincoln Riley's put all of his eggs in the Hurts basket this season he's been the the bell cow as the runner and as a thrower Oklahoma ran 95 plays and Hurts accounted for 69 of those plays he threw 42 passes and had a career high 27 rush attempts um you know had 297 passing yards, 114 rushing yards, the four passing touchdowns, leading Oklahoma back from a 28-3 deficit, and, you know, a 31-10 halftime deficit. Um, And you have to shout out Oklahoma's defense, too, because, you know, they didn't give up any second-half points, and the much maligned Sooners defense coming up and making plays when they had to. But Hurts, man, just showed the heart that he's played with his whole career, the kind of performances that have made him a fan favorite for so long, um, and really keeping Oklahoma alive. I think we're both probably in agreement that they're not going to be a playoff team, barring some chaos. But, you know, not everyone can make the playoff. There's only four spots for that. Oklahoma can still end up 
a 12 and one big 12 champion with a birth in the sugar bowl and a potential matchup with Alabama actually looks pretty decent at this point, even with Tua's injury kind of removing how good of a narrative you could have had for that sugar bowl. But, um, I, my game ball went to Jalen Hurts. I was impressed with his resolve after really struggling in the first half and really bouncing back with a big second half and leading Oklahoma back. I definitely considered Hurts as well because he really did put everything together and he's consistently put Oklahoma on his back. Whether or not the Sooners win the national title, he's definitely earned him spot, his spot at the Heisman ceremony in just a couple of weeks down the road. For me, I stuck it with the quarterback position, but as I so often do, I went to the group of five. I really liked Brady White at Memphis. He put together a really strong performance against Houston on the road to lead the Tigers to a 45-27 victory and keep them in the driver's seat of the uh, American Athletic Conference West Division. He went 22 of 33 for 341 yards and five touchdowns, and he added a rushing touchdown in the second quarter just to, you know, put a little cherry on top. He now ranks seventh in the country in both passing touchdowns and passing efficiency. I think we kind of ignore him at our peril he could really be one of those group of five quarterbacks that launches up into at least the second day of the NFL draft I think the way he's been playing um you know he's got that potential to be a fast riser especially if Memphis gets themselves into a New Year's Six Bowl so I was impressed all around on a day when Kenneth Gainwell was held under 100 rushing yards. Brady White really stepped up and made that passing offense hum. Yeah, I think Brady White's a legit NFL prospect at quarterback, really having a great season for Memphis, and the Tigers are right there. Potentially, in my opinion, in the driver's seat in the group of five race. I know you've got thoughts on that, but with a home game against Cincinnati and then, again, another potential home game against Cincinnati or whoever in the AAC championship game, I think um, Memphis right now controls their own destiny in that race. And at the same time, they have to win out still because they take even a single loss. The winner of SMU Navy takes that West division, which is really interesting to think about considering the Tigers beat both of those teams. Um, But at the same time, you know, if they do lose to Cincinnati, they won't get a rematch. So they got to keep winning. But I like their chances to do so thanks to guys like Brady White. Shifting to defense, I'll throw out my game ball first. Um, we talked about Utah a bit in terms of just the the strength of their victory. And a big part of that win was defensive back Julian Blackman. He had an unbelievable game. In terms of total tackles, you usually don't want to see a defensive back lead your team in total tackles. But he did, and it was actually a really good thing. He finished with a dozen tackles, nine of them solo. But he racked up one and a half sacks. He was getting disruptive at the line of scrimmage, really, you know, shifting up and helping in both run coverage and the passing game. He snatched a key interception early in the second quarter when UCLA was in Utah territory, driving to take the lead when they were down seven to three. 
And then later in the second quarter, he sacked Dorian Thompson-Robinson, knocked the ball out, and Mike Tafua picked it up and returned it 68 yards for that touchdown that really allowed Utah to start running away with the game as they took a 21-3 lead. So all around, just all over that defense, Blackman had just a huge game coming up with several, you know, helping generate several huge turnovers, both with the fumble punched out and the the pick. And then just not letting UCLA get to the next level, or when they did, he was there to just clean it up without any, you know, uh, question. Yeah, I, that's a great pick. The the Utah defense as a whole has just been impressive all season long. One of the best overall units in college football. Always been Kyle Whittingham's calling card, and now that they've got the offense that can really match it if their defense ever has an off day, really making the Utes a really dangerous football team. Um, for me, I I went with the guy who I think Kelly Bryant's probably still having nightmares about today, uh, Jonathan Greenard, the linebacker for Florida. He had six tackles, two sacks, five stops in the backfield, and an additional quarterback hurry. And Florida's defense really dominated uh, a Missouri offense that we've seen that can rack up points pretty quickly and fast. Um, so Florida, you know, kind of the forgotten about team, I think, in the SEC right now. You always talk about the big three of LSU, Alabama, Georgia. But Florida's 9-2. and two. They're in the top 12 currently, so they're really in position to um, get another New Year's Six bowl berth this year if they can obviously contingent on beating Florida State at the end of the season. Uh, you know, not to say that that'll be an easy task, but this is certainly far from one of the better iterations of the Seminoles. So uh, likelihood is pretty good that Florida State finishes with 10 wins. Their defense has been a really big reason why. I think their offense – you know, is solid, but you're, this isn't the type of Gators offense that's going to drop 45, 50 points on teams. They really have to rely on a more of a conservative kind of game plan with Kyle Trask. Um, and then they have to rely on their defense to make plays, and their defense so often does. They've got a lot of really standouts, and Greenard's kind of not been talked about, I think, as much as some of the others, such as, you know, David Reese. Um, I think guys in the defensive backfield that have made a lot of plays as well. So I was really impressed with him. It felt like he was in the backfield every single play and helped the Gators hold Missouri to just six points at Missouri too, making it all the more impressive. Yeah, that was a really great performance. And I know we've extended this first segment to everybody, but I just have to ask you one more question before we go to break, John, since I know that you do the bull projections for Saturday Blitz. Where do you see Florida ending up if they do take down Florida State as we expect and get to 10 wins? Last week I had them sitting um, in the Citrus Bowl, but I think with... um, a couple of things happening this week like they did with Baylor dropping to Oklahoma. I think there's a chance that Baylor, if they lose again to Oklahoma in the Big 12 title game, which I would expect Oklahoma to be favored in that game, obviously uh, the Bears will probably drop down out of the New Year's Six, and Florida's probably the team that benefits from that the most. So I would say currently you're looking at the potential there being four SEC teams again in the New Year's Six, uh, LSU's pretty much a playoff lock at this point I think even if they drop a game to Georgia in the SEC championship game uh, then you've got Alabama or Georgia depending on who the committee would take for the Sugar Bowl because the next highest ranked SEC team automatically goes to the Sugar Bowl 
And then you're sitting down at the, the Orange Bowl taking the next highest ranked team, which would probably be either Georgia or Alabama, whoever doesn't get in the Sugar Bowl, unless we end up with two SEC teams in the um, in the college football playoff, which is obviously still a possibility. So, yeah, then you're looking at uh, a potential Orange Bowl berth for Florida at that point, which, you know, would be the Orange Bowl would obviously be happy about getting the a really essentially a home game for Florida, obviously in Miami, but uh, really close for their fan base. So I do think Florida's got a really good shot if they finish 10 and 2, 10 and 2 of getting that fourth spot uh, for the SEC in the playoff after Baylor lost to Oklahoma this week. No, I think it's a really good point. And uh, thanks for breaking it down because, you know, the Bulls can easily become a swirl in everybody's brain. So really great. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, everybody, now, since we've been having your, you know, we've been talking in your ear for the past 45 minutes or so. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in about a minute or so uh, to talk about week 13 action. So stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back for the next segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're shifting gears to talk about week 13 action against the spread. Just as a caveat to let you all know, we are recording earlier this week, so we only have access to the opening lines right now. So, picking against the spread this week will be against those openers. We do not have the advantage of shifts as betting goes on, so bear with that in mind. And we will be taking our lumps accordingly in week 14 as necessary from it. With that in mind, let's go look at our first game. Uh, Pitt is going to Blacksburg to play Virginia Tech at Lane Stadium as a one-point underdog. Um, Just, you know, we're looking at this as minus one, but even just in those first few hours, Virginia Tech has already been bid up to a three-point favorite in this game. So keep that in mind as you're thinking out there, everybody. Um, But we're looking at it as minus one. So what do you think is going to happen in this game this week, John? You know, honest to God, Zach, when it comes to the ACC Coastal Division, I think we'd both be better off taking coin flips to decide who wins these games. This is the most chaotic division in college football. There, like, like we've talked about in recent weeks, six times in six years there's been a different champion. If Virginia wins the Coastal this year, it'll be seven division champions in seven years. There has not been a more chaotic division in the sport than the Coastal. And this is a massive game for it. This is under-the-radar game in college football this week. But both Pitt and Virginia Tech enter at 7-3 and three and 4-2 and two in conference. The Orange Bowl could literally be on the line by whoever comes out of the Coastal Division. Because unless Clemson suffers a shocking upset to either South Carolina or the Coastal Division winner in the ACC title game, they're a playoff lock. They're, we've talked about all season they were a virtual playoff lock. Um, so someone has to go to the Orange Bowl from this conference, and this game could be a big factor in who ends up going. I've been really impressed, Zach, with how Justin Fuentes turned things around at Virginia Tech this season after a really unfortunate start. They've been playing so much better in recent weeks, and they look like a real threat. They rolled over Wake Forest a couple weeks ago. 
They did what they should do against a bottom-tier ACC team in Georgia Tech last week by winning 45 to nothing. Bud Foster's got things going defensively. I think they found something at quarterback and Hendon Hooker, um, and everything's just going really well for them. I think the minus three line makes more sense to me just because it does feel like kind of a toss-up game and Virginia Tech getting the requisite three points with the game being played at Lane Stadium this week. But, man, it's so difficult to handicap a game like this because Pitt is a different team every single week. You never know what you're going to get with the Panthers. They could come out there and pull out a shocking upset, or they could lay an egg like they have so many times over the years. So you never know what to expect, I don't think, with the Panthers. To me, this comes down to home field advantage. I think the Hokies playing at home are going to end up getting this win, setting up what could be a winner-take-all game when they play Virginia at the end of the year, not just for the Coastal Division, but an Orange Bowl bid um, at the same time. So I like Virginia Tech to end up getting the win, probably low-scoring, kind of ugly sort of game. But I took Virginia Tech 24-20. to I think that's fair. I think they, they cover whether you're looking at it or at as one or three for sure. I honestly like Virginia Tech to to win big in this game. I think Pitt, because they vacillate from week to week, I think going into hostile territory in Lane Stadium is, is going to be that tipping factor. You know, last week the Panthers survived the North Carolina comeback charge 134-27 in overtime. Or else we're not even talking about this as a potential coastal battle here. So I, I think Virginia Tech has just been a lot more impressive, especially down the stretch leading into this game. And the Panthers, they just don't score enough points to keep up with a Virginia Tech team that has been really good defensively in the past month or so. So I have them winning by double digits, you know, 10 points. 14 points somewhere in that range um, to set up the Commonwealth Cup against Virginia as effectively an ACC Coastal Championship game. So I don't know what that says, everybody. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it sounds like we're in, in pretty much uh, lockstep in this one. So let's see if we disagree on the next game. Penn State will be heading to the horseshoe to play Ohio State in what effectively amounts to a, a de facto Big Ten East championship game on Saturday in Columbus. Ohio State's a huge favorite at home. The opening line was at 17 for this game, and um, I have not seen it go down much yet. It does... Um, it, it effectively comes down to seeing Ohio State as more than a two-touchdown favorite at home against what's been a really good Penn State team. So do you think the Nittany Lions have any chance the way that Vegas sees this playing out? I think 17's too many points. I don't think Penn State's going to go to the horseshoe and upset Ohio State this weekend, but 17's really disrespectful. I think the happiest person in America right now is James Franklin seeing that line and getting to play up being a massive underdog to his team and the disrespect on his nine and one team has as a top 10 opponent coming to Ohio state. But I'm on record all year so far, Zach, since really the first couple of weeks is saying Ohio state's the best team in college football. 
Like, no disrespect to LSU, no disrespect to Clemson. The Buckeyes, to me, have been the most well-rounded team in the sport. They get a massive boost this week with Chase Young coming back from his two-game suspension. He's been arguably the best player in college football this year. Obviously, we talk about the quarterbacks, Burrow, Tungavailoa, Hurts, and Justin Fields on his own team. But Chase Young has been as dominant as any player on defense I've seen in a number of years. It reminds me of... Ndamukong Sue at Nebraska in 2009. He's having that kind of impact on this Buckeyes defense. Remember last year, Ohio State wasn't a good defensive team whatsoever. They were they really struggled on that side of the ball. Their defensive shortcomings ended up costing them a spot, a potential spot in the playoff at the end of the year. Obviously, winning the Rose Bowl is nothing to sneeze at, but their defense has made massive improvements this year. They have one of the best defenses in college football. I think it's going to be really difficult for Journey Brown and that Penn State running game to get going, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on Sean Clifford to make plays down the field. He's obviously capable. I just can't see Penn State ultimately keeping pace in this game. Uh, We've talked about in recent weeks the Nittany Lions have a really good front seven, but their secondary has been susceptible to some plays, and obviously Justin Fields I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about Justin Fields not leading the Heisman race when you look at the fact that he's thrown 31 touchdown passes and one interception this year. Like, that's the day and age we live in in college football that a line like that doesn't have you leading the Heisman Trophy race by a landslide. He's been brilliant for the Buckeyes this year. I think that continues. I think Penn State's good enough to keep it under three scores, but I think Ohio State ultimately wins by a couple of touchdowns, something along the lines of 34 to 20, I think probably makes sense. Yeah, I I, I think that it's going to be under 17. And actually, I just went and refreshed, and currently Ohio State is a 19-point favorite. Wow. So that's getting bet up even more. People have some incredible confidence in the Buckeyes just rolling over a really good Penn State team. And I think part of that is A, Justin Fields, and B, a Nittany Lions secondary that has looked a bit exposed in recent weeks. Uh, You look at the way Minnesota was able to play with Tanner Morgan just hitting Rashad Bateman and the rest of his receivers just time and time again against Penn State. And then you look at the way that Indiana was able to play with Peyton Ramsey playing really well in a close contest in Happy Valley. And in recent weeks, that Penn State secondary has started to look really shaky. And so I can understand why betters are looking really confidently at Ohio State. But at the same time, I don't think J.K. Dobbins is going to find nearly as much running room against Micah Parsons and crew and that front seven led by Shaka Tony as he's been able to find in recent weeks. And so, yeah, I, I, I hate to say it, everybody, but I agree with John again. Uh, Ohio State's going to pull out a close win. I think it's even closer than you said. I think it's within a touchdown. I I see it being like six, seven points is the final margin, say like 37-31. But I do see Penn State covering that spread on the road but losing their second on the season and dropping any chance of reaching the college football playoff. Let me ask you a quick question, Zach. I know we're going a little bit longer this week, everyone, than we usually do, but there's been a lot to talk about. You do the the playoff projected rankings every week now. 
I'm curious, if Ohio State blows out Penn State this week, say they cover the 19-point spread that has been bet up to at this point, they win by three or more touchdowns, do you think the Buckeyes have any shot of jumping back to number one over LSU? Oh, yeah, indeed. I, I think with that being uh, a really high-ranked encounter, getting to play that final you know, data point really close to the end of the season, especially with Michigan also at the end of the year. Um, if it doesn't happen against Penn State, it would happen after they beat Michigan. I think there's just the way their schedule loads up backloaded like that really plays out well for Ryan Day's crew. Yeah, and obviously the committee's already big fans of the Buckeyes. They debuted at number one in the first committee ranking, so you know that's in their minds and everything. So I think it's going to be a fascinating race if it's undefeated LSU or undefeated Ohio State who ends up being the number one seed. Well, and I think it'll be 1-2 regardless. And the way it lines up, LSU will go to the Peach Bowl. Ohio State will end up in the Fiesta Bowl regardless of what happens there. Now, the interesting thing is what happens if you have a weird twist at three and four there. So imagine Clemson drops out or even drops to number four. You could see Clemson easily going to the Peach Bowl at number four. And then who slots in at number three will be a really interesting decision. If it's another SEC school, neither one has the geographic advantage. But let's say Oregon or Utah wins out and takes that spot and bumps up to number three for one reason or another. You have them playing Ohio State at number two or LSU at number two in a, with a decided geographic advantage. And it would be really interesting to see how the committee would deal with that because they try to make that as fair as possible for the top two seeds. But given the fact they decide their venues in advance, there's only so much right. leeway you have. I think it's interesting, too, because if, if we get a second SEC team, say there's a little bit of chaos and say Alabama jumps to number four, I could see the committee just jumping Ohio State to one and LSU to two just to avoid an LSU-Alabama rematch in a semifinal. And if we get that rematch, it would be for the national championship. So there's a lot of little factors like that that they might not say factors into their decision-making, but it has to, in my mind, ultimately factor in uh, just for TV ratings and stuff like that and to avoid the potential rematches and everything. So it'll be a really fascinating race the rest of the season. Well, and that's the thing. The fact that they get to do this behind closed doors with, you know, and then when they come out with the selection committee rankings every Tuesday or on selection Sunday when they do it for the final ones, the fact is, is they get to retroactively defend whatever they decide behind closed doors. They can come with whatever justification they want, and just like the NCAA gets to define amateurism as whatever they want, the College Football Playoff Selection Committee gets to define what makes a top-four team however they want in any given season. And the interesting thing is, is even before coming into Week 12, Alabama, by precedent, should have been much lower than number five. We've seen teams play that were in the top four before in the college football playoff, and the loser has dropped to around number seven to number nine in the past. And that's where I had them slotted in. But at the same time, the college football playoff selection committee gets to define however that goes in a given year, and precedent effectively goes out the door when you're looking at something like that. Precedent doesn't matter when you get to 
kind of move the goalposts from week to week. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that for sure. I, um, they, they definitely make decisions and then justify them later um, with whatever kind of alternative facts that they want to bring up, I guess, to, to do that. Because, I mean, you can argue for anything and you can find some kind of stat or some kind of number that ultimately backs that argument up. It doesn't make it any less bullcrap at the end of the day than it is. But, I mean, that was the same thing with Georgia being number four last week. Maybe Georgia has a better case as number four this week after the road win over Auburn, giving them another quality win. But if you're looking at strength of losses, I mean, Georgia's loss to South Carolina should be a a massive divot to me in their resume when you've got a team like Oregon whose only loss was at a neutral site to Auburn in the beginning of the season. Utah's only loss on the road to a USC team that's probably the third best team in the Pac-12 this season. Also, both those teams having quality wins. I'd probably bump one of them to number four personally, but, you know, they don't care what I say. Of course not. We're not on the committee. Let's move on to game number three in our picks. Uh, Texas A&M heads to Georgia for a big interdivisional game. Georgia's already clinched the SEC spot in the title game, or the SEC East spot in the title game. Um, They're a two-touchdown favorite at home against the Aggies between the hedges. And it's really interesting to see what this Aggies team can do. So yeah, the Aggies are probably one of the best three-loss teams in the country. Uh, Obviously a two-touchdown underdog, but it'll be really interesting to see what they can do against Georgia. Uh, what do you think about that line and the chances for Jimbo Fisher's crew on the road in Athens? I think it's probably a little bit high. I don't know if I trust Georgia's offense right now enough to predict that they're going to blow anybody out. And like you said with Texas A&M, they come into this game 7-3. and three. If you look at their losses, they lost to Clemson, they lost to Auburn, and they lost to Alabama. I mean, they don't have a bad loss anywhere on the resume. They've played a brutal schedule up to this point. And it just only gets worse, right? They're 7-3 and three right now, already having played three teams that were in the top 10 this week. They finished the season at Georgia and at LSU. I mean, the SEC did them no favors this year. This A&M team might be better than last year's A&M team, and they're still going to finish with a worse record just by virtue of playing a murderer's row across the country this season. There's a chance if LSU stays number one, like they probably will coming into the game, they'll have played three different teams ranked number one at some point this season, playing Clemson, Alabama, and LSU. That's insane. So what you can't say about Texas A&M is that they're not battle-tested. They're not going to be intimidated coming into this environment. They've played quality teams all season long. They, you know, Jimbo Fisher's a national championship winning coach. So he's been in these situations. I think he'll have Texas A&M ready to play. I don't think they're going to be able to beat Georgia because I think Georgia's defense has kind of peaked at the right time. And I think the Bulldogs will make life tough on Kellen Mond and hold Isaiah Spiller in that running game down and kind of make Mond make plays down the field. And we've seen when that running game's taken away, Mond has struggled in many games to win, put the team on his back and win games with his arm. As talented as he is, I think sometimes the pressure gets to him in those situations. I just don't trust Georgia to win by two touchdowns over about anybody right now just because I don't think Fromm and that offense are playing well enough to do so. So I think the game's a little bit closer than that. I would say Georgia probably ends up winning something along the lines of 27-17 sticks out in my mind. So a double-digit win, but under that two-touchdown spread. 
Yeah, I, I think that's really fair just in terms of, you know, if the game only went for 45 minutes, I'd trust them to win by 21. But the way they've been playing down the stretch and finishing games, I, I think it will be under that 14. Um, I'm with you, though. I'm skeptical that the Aggies can actually pull out the upset. They have an offense to keep pace, but that's against teams that just, you know, they, they haven't been able to do it against teams that are the caliber of Georgia's defense. And we've seen that when they lost. They've lost to really good teams, but they've lost to teams with really good defenses as well. So when they play a team with one of those top-shelf units, they they end up on the short end. And I think that's going to happen again. Uh, sorry to all you Aggies fans out there, but... You know, I see this one being 10 or less. I, I could see it being a, a 24-17, 24-20 even. But I see Georgia doing enough to keep themselves in the college football playoff picture, even as A&M covers. Ooh, we're three for three. Yeah, sorry, everybody. Uh, so far, just to kind of reiterate your picks, you want to go with Pitt, you want to go with Penn State, or you want to go with Ohio State blowing out, and you want to go with Texas A&M. Uh, or I guess you want to go with Georgia in a blowout here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> moving on to Game 4, let's see if we get some disagreement here. Uh, Michigan heads to Bloomington to take on Indiana. The Hoosiers are a 7-point underdog after losing in Happy Valley to Penn State. Well, Michigan, honestly, is still clinging to sort of latent hopes for a New Year's Six berth as an at-large bid that will always be attractive to bowl selectors. So, as a seven-point underdog, do you think the Hoosiers can throw a wrench into Jim Harbaugh's dreams of getting to a major bowl game this year? I think this is a really interesting game because obviously Michigan has looked really impressive. I would say since the second half of the Penn State game back on October 19th, battling back from a, a 28 nothing deficit and making that a game at the end. But the Wolverines, you know, rolled over Notre Dame after that. They blew out Maryland. They blew out rival Michigan State last week. So Michigan's really been on a run. But this is one of this is the best Indiana team I've ever seen in my lifetime at this point. Like the the Hoosiers are legit on offense, whether it's been Michael Penix or whether it's been Peyton Ramsey taking snaps. They've been fantastic offensively. They acquitted themselves a lot better than I think a lot of people thought last week in Happy Valley, only losing by a touchdown. I don't think that should really affect their standing in the rankings this week just because, you know, no one really thought they could go to Penn State and win, and they really performed well. Um this is a seven-win Indiana team at this point. I mean, if they can, even if they lose this game, if they can beat Purdue and win eight games, it'll be their best season since 1993. So it's been a dream season in Bloomington. They're going to be up for this game because it is Michigan coming in. They got them at home. I don't know if I feel comfortable enough to pick Indiana to win outright, but I think this is going to be a dogfight. I really think Indiana is going to give Michigan a game. The Wolverines. Green's really good on defense this year. And then Shea Patterson's performed pretty well over the last few weeks, finally kind of snapping out of a early season slump that he had. So I think Michigan wins, but I think it's close. I think Michigan ultimately 
comes out 26-23, winning on a game-winning field goal to finally subdue a really stubborn Hoosier squad. But I think this could be end up being one of the better games of the day. I'm really excited about this game. I think it's going to be absolutely incredible. And the thing that has me excited is the Hoosiers still have a shot at the first 10-win season in school history. That has never happened in Bloomington before. Of course, they have to win out, and then they have to win their bowl game. But if they do that, they get to 10-3 and three and win 10 games for the first time in history. I think Michigan has been something of a Jekyll and Hyde team this year. I think they might get caught looking ahead to that Ohio State game especially. Um, whenever you have a rivalry game in the upcoming week, it really sets that game right before it as a nerve wracker. I think, honestly, that's something the SEC does really well in terms of having a lot of its teams schedule FCS games before that rivalry game. Um, because you know uh, Alabama or Auburn isn't going to have to worry about another conference opponent before they meet each other in the Iron Bowl or something like that, you know. Um, but Michigan has a really tough test here, uh, just like Ohio State does against Penn State. And I, I think, honestly, Michigan gets caught looking ahead. I really do. Um, I think their defense will mask some of their mistakes, but I don't think they can mask enough of them. I think Indiana has the motivation, and the wherewithal to pull off the upset in Bloomington. I think it's going to be close, like you said, but I think I think Hoosiers fans are walking away really happy on Saturday. I love it. I'd love to see Indiana get the win and potentially go to a bowl game sitting at 9-3. and three. I think that's just great for them. I don't think enough's being said about how good of a job Tom Allen has done in Bloomington, uh, not just this season, but overall since taking over a really tough situation um, there with everything that happened. So really great season for Indiana. Uh, this would definitely be the cherry on top of the Sunday, though, if they can pull off the upset of Michigan. Yeah, this is an Indiana team that plays in the Big Ten, everybody. And, you know, while the Big Ten top to bottom is not – you know, a, a murderer's row every week. The fact is, is they're having to do this in a power five conference as a basketball school. And it, it like it just revel in what kind of work that Allen has done here. I completely agree yeah. with you that he deserves that recognition. Yeah. I mean, I would say the top five of the big 10 stacks up as well as any conference in the country. When you look at oh, Ohio yeah. state, Penn state, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan in the five, and then you get even further down than that, and you get into Indiana, Iowa, Illinois. I mean, it's a very deep league this year, and arguably, I would say 1A, 1B with the SEC, probably in terms of the best conference in college football. Yeah, they've definitely been really solid and really deep this year. Well, let's shift our minds to uh, Group of Five Country for our final game of, of the week that we're picking in this segment. SMU heads to Annapolis to take on Navy. Uh, the winner of this game could sneak into the AAC West title if Memphis takes one loss in their last two games against South Florida or Cincinnati. So a lot is still at stake here for both of these teams. You know, the midshipmen are coming off their demoralizing blowout loss at Notre Dame. 
really unfortunate. Um, I'll talk about it more when I talk about my garbage picks, but I'm just going to leave it at that for now. SMU has played really close contests in four of their past five. Um, So what do you think is going to happen in this game, given the trajectory of these two teams right now? You know, I think SMU is going to take a long, hard look at the film from last week with Notre Dame and Navy and see how Notre Dame was able to expose Navy's secondary. Um, You know, Ian Book threw five touchdown passes last week for the Irish. SMU's got a really good passing attack with Shane Bouchelle, with James Prochet, and that prolific group of receivers. So I think they're going to be able to make some plays down the field. And how SMU's defense has struggled this year has been through the air. Their defense, their pass defense gives up 300 yards a game, but against the run, they're only giving up 124. You know, they've been pretty good against the run. Obviously, Navy's rushing offense is different than many they faced all year with it being an option-based offense. They probably would have benefited from having to play Tulane or something a few weeks earlier to maybe help them prepare for this. But I think the the weakness of SMU's defense all year has been in the secondary, and obviously Navy's not going to really be able to take advantage of that. As good of a player as Malcolm Perry is, he's not going to strike fear into opponents with his arm. So I I think SMU is um, – I think SMU's the better team here, even on the road. I forgot, Zach, what was the spread again? Uh, the spread is four-and-a-half-point favorite for Navy. Oh, yeah. That, I think, should probably, even with Navy being at home, should probably flip in the opposite direction. I think SMU, um, I think their passing game is going to do a lot of the same as to what Notre Dame's did last week. Uh, so I, I like SMU ultimately to win. The game will probably be close, uh, but I took SMU 31-24. 31-24. All right. I I like SMU as well. So I, I'm sorry, everybody. You might go 0-5 picking what we picked, or you might go 5-0. Who knows? Um, you know, I think this is going to be a high-scoring Donnybrook. I think it's going to be something that's decided in those waning moments. I, I, I agree with you that Shane Bouchelle could have a really big game against the midi uh, secondary there. James Prochet is in. I really wish Reggie Roberson didn't have that foot injury that was keeping him out because I think if you have both of them in there, it, it's an unstoppable attack pretty much. Um, you know, you double cover one of them, the other one's just going to torch you. But even with that said, um, Prochet and the rest of the weapons on that uh, passing attack are more than enough to take care of business. I, I think SMU is going to get a game-winning field goal at the end. I think this is a really close game, but I, I do see the Mustangs pulling off that late upset as time expires and coming away victorious and setting themselves up as the team to benefit most if Memphis does fall in one of those last two games. All right. I don't know if we've ever gone five for five on a green before, so that's that's probably devastating news uh, or good news for those out there who are fading our picks. Yeah, you know, uh, I'll I'll let you all out there in cyberspace listening decide for yourselves. But as you mull over that, we're going to take our second quick break here before we get into our final segment, talking about the garbage we dealt out in week 12 offering out our upsets and our locks, and getting to some gustatory delights with our look at what to eat and drink in week 13. 
Stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of the podcast this week, everybody. We just went through some week 13 action against the spread. I think for the first time in Saturday Blitz podcast history, we actually agreed on all five games against the spread. That might be the danger of picking against opening lines this week. We'll see how that actually works out. But for now, we're going to pivot back quickly to week 12 and look at the garbage that we dealt out last week. What was the game that you feel most ashamed about the way you picked it, John? Oh, man. that You know, unfortunately, this week there's a lot to choose from. Um, you know, I <laughs> we both picked Notre, or Navy to upset Notre Dame last week. So, I mean, that's obviously the biggest one, but... I know you've got more thoughts on that, so I'm going to let you take that one, obviously. But that was that honestly deserves enough for both of us to probably hammer in about it because that was as bad as it gets. Um, but I also took Auburn to upset Georgia last week, so I wouldn't call that outright garbage because the Tigers acquitted themselves nicely with the comeback. Their postgame win expectancy, according to Bill Connolly on Sunday morning, was actually 51% in favor of Auburn. So that was a bit surprising considering Georgia had a 21 to nothing lead in that game. Uh, but I really expected um, Auburn's defense to shut down DeAndre Swift. He obviously proved me wrong going over 100 yards, which is super impressive against that Auburn front, by the way. Uh, Swift just consistently proving that he's one of the best running backs in college football. So I, I, I'll go with that one on that. I'll let you opine about picking Navy to win outright just like I did. So we can share in that misery. Yeah, I mean, I also picked Auburn. I, I think, you know, I also picked Minnesota over Iowa. So I think at least with those two games, they were close and they, you know, they came close enough that I don't feel entirely embarrassed about it, but I went to straight hyperbole with the Navy Notre Dame game. You know, I said, I, I didn't say the midshipmen were just going to beat the spread. I didn't say the midshipmen were just going to win. I said the midshipmen were going to pull off a double digit victory for their biggest margin of victory in South Bend since 1963 when they finished number two in the country and played the Cotton Bowl against Texas. That didn't happen. It didn't happen even a little bit. Touchdown Jesus was really happy as he watched the Fighting Irish win 52-20. So... It, hats off to Brian Kelly's team. Hats off to Ian Book. They proved doubters like me absolutely wrong. There were a lot of people out there who thought Navy might pull off the upset. We certainly weren't the only two people that made that call. But I don't know anybody who who, who was as optimistic about Navy as I was in terms of how big I thought they'd win and what kind of statement they could make. But the Notre Dame defense bottled up that Navy ground game. You know, they held them to less, they held them to 100, more than 100 fewer yards than their season average as the national leader. And if you bottle up Navy's ground game even a little bit, you've bottled up the Navy offense. And so Notre Dame did exactly what they needed to do on Saturday and made me look like a fool in the process. So 
listen to me choke on a little bit of crow here, everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a defensible pick. I mean, you looked at how the trajectory of both teams, Notre Dame had been really struggling on both sides of the balls, on both sides of the ball for several weeks. So, you know, maybe maybe going so far as the call for the Navy blowout win over Notre Dame was maybe a little too much. But, you know, I think it was defensible to pick Navy, and I'll die on that hill. Yeah, no, I, 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 I would, I would be looking at another game this week if I had said it would be a close game. I, I think the fact that Notre Dame basically reversed the script that I foresaw makes this, it makes this a, a garbage pick. So on that note, let's get back into Week Thirteen because as bad as some picks get, the beauty is is we can always look anew at new opportunities for laying down more money and possibly winning big again. With that in mind, who do you think is going to be the upset of the week against the spread, John? I was really surprised when we were talking about lines a little bit earlier, Zach, to see that. Um... To see that Tennessee opened as a seven-point underdog on the road against Missouri, uh, that spread I think's been bet down pretty heavily already. But if you were paying attention to the Sunday lines, and one of the advantages of paying attention to the Sunday lines is you can sometimes grab some surprising ones before they get a little sharper throughout the week. Um, last I saw, I think Missouri was only a four and a half point favorite now. But if you were able to grab Tennessee plus seven, I think you're going to be sitting pretty this week. Uh, if you just look at the trajectory of both teams, and maybe this is going to be the Navy-Notre Dame curse coming back around for me, but Missouri's really struggled on offense the last few weeks. They've man- Missouri scored 13 points in the last three games. You know, they only put up six against Florida. They got shut out by Georgia, and they only scored a touchdown against um, Kentucky. And that even goes back to Van. They only scored 14 on Vanderbilt. They've lost four straight games after a really good 5-1 and one start. Um, and on the other side of things, Tennessee has looked really good in recent weeks. They started one in five. Tennessee's now won, or they started one in four. They've won four of their last five games. Um, they've been rolling. They just got a, a big win over Kentucky. They've had an extra week of preparation after having um, a week off this past weekend. So I think the balls are going to not just cover this touchdown spread. I think they're going to win outright. Um, in Columbia. I think their defense has been really good in recent weeks. Jeremy Pruitt's really figured some things out on that side of the ball. So I think they're going to do similar things to Missouri's offense that we've seen in recent weeks. So I, the wrong team's favored here, in my opinion. I think Vegas is going to take a bath on this one. So give me Tennessee winning outright over uh, Missouri as my upset this week. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think a lot of betters have already looked at that. Just in those first few hours since the line opened, it's already gone down by a field goal to, to minus four, Missouri. And, ten, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Tennessee covers this outright. They win outright in this game. I'd be shocked if Missouri comes out ahead. And similarly, I'm looking at... I, I, I don't know if UCLA wins outright, but they opened as a 10-point underdog at USC. That's been bet up to 13-point underdog status within the, you know, the first few hours of the line. And the thing about UCLA is, as, you know, as bad as they looked against Utah, Utah makes a lot of teams look bad. That defense makes a lot of teams look bad. 
And even though they didn't make USC look bad, ultimately, the, the stakes are a lot higher for the Bruins right now. Chip Kelly's team has to win out to reach bowl eligibility, and they would love nothing more than to do that against one of the, you know, their big rival, their big crosstown rival. Um, they also would have to win against Cal in the season finale to, to get there, but I, I, I think the Bruins have a really good chance. At this point, the Trojans can't reach the Pac-12 title game unless Utah loses both of their last two, and I, I just don't see that happening. And so, you know, as I said, the Bruins are at least going to keep this close. It's going to be well under the 10-point line, much less the 13-point line that people have bet this to. But I think they, win, they, they have a really good chance of winning this outright and taking the victory bell. I would have been more confident in that because I've been actually calling for UCLA to upset USC in recent weeks because I've had UCLA projected as a bowl team. I'd have been a lot more confident in that if they didn't lose by 46 against Utah. So I hope you're right because this has been a pick I've kind of eyed for a few weeks now just based on the motivation factor coming in. This is also the last regular season game of the year for USC, by the way. Like they, Their season ends a week earlier than most other teams, which could be a big advantage if the Trojans decide to make a coaching change after the final regular season game. So that could be interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, honestly, USC fans might be rooting for a Chip Kelly victory so that they get somebody else in there instead of Clay Helton. Because, you know, I think if they do win the victory bowl there, it's going to be, you know, they finish 8-4. and four. They, they have a chance for a 9-win season in a bowl game, but... USC is aiming for far higher than eight win regular seasons. That's that's by birthright they should be winning the South every year. There should not be a, a, an upstart former mid major team like Utah that can come in and usurp their throne even after the Trojans beat them. That's not the way things are supposed to work in the balance of power in that division. And USC, especially after they went and got Mike Bone as their new athletic director, is going to be hungry to clean up that football program and get it back to the heights that we all know it can be. Absolutely. Well, with that in mind, let's uh, look at our locks now. Um, Personally, I really, I think we both actually talked about this before we even started the podcast. UCF is going to New Orleans to play Tulane. And as much as we've loved Tulane throughout the year, and as much as this Tulane team, you know, started with their strongest start since 1998, it's been a bit of a disappointing swoon since then. The Knights come to... Uh, New Orleans as a four and a half point favorite on that opening line. And I, I haven't even seen what that's bet up to by then, but I think no matter, you know, that could get bet up four or five points even. I could see this UCF minus nine and still being something you want to bet on. I think if it got to double digits, you'd start to want to pause a bit, but just the trajectory of these two teams. UCF has huge motivation. They're looking to restore face. They had a Week 10 loss against Tulsa that completely changed the narrative yet again on a season of roller coaster rides for, for the Knights. Um, and then they took their second bye. 
You know, they've been on a break and haven't been able to come back out and atone for that loss. And I think that's going to make things really ugly for the green wave because all the motivation is there to just stomp on whoever's in front of Josh Heupel's crew. Um, and, you know, as, you know, as great as the running attack has been for Tulane, they don't have the balance on offense to keep up with a really prolific Knights team. So I, I see UCF winning this game by double digits on the road and improving to 8-3 and three as they keep their chances of, alive for another 10-win season. Yeah, I mean, we were we were talking when the lines finally went live, and we were both immediately like, I want UCF. I want UCF as my lock. Like, that was just, I think, too easy. I think it's easy money. I was shocked by that line, even as a, as a road game, just by the way two lanes played, honestly, in recent weeks. And like you said, UCF having the extra week to prepare and being probably pissed off following that loss to Tulsa. So I like that pick a lot. Another one that really made me pause when I was looking at the opening lines was North Texas going on the road to play rice is only a five point favorite. Um, North Texas is only four and six. They've had a really disappointing season um, this year after a really strong season last year. Um, You know, the loss of Graham Harrell as their offensive coordinator, I think has affected them, but even still Seth Luttrell was one of the hottest names in college football last season was offered um, the head coaching job at Kansas state and ultimately turned it down. Um, It's been a disappointing season. They're coming off a a bye week as well after getting blown out by Louisiana Tech. But North Texas has got to win out to even get bowl eligible. They're four and six right now. They've got to beat Rice on the road, and they've got to beat UAB at home to finish the season to get to six wins. I, you know, whether or not they can beat UAB on the final weekend of the of the regular season for them is up for debate and obviously going to be challenging. But I don't think they're going to lose bowl eligibility because they went to Rice and didn't win a game. So I think Mason Fine and that offense is going to roll. This Rice team's only one and nine. This spread should probably be more along the lines of 10 or so. And like you said about Central Florida, I'd probably still feel pretty decent about North Texas in this game. Maybe that's biasness based on I thought this mean green squad would be better this year than they have been, but I think most people probably did. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this Rice team is really, really bad. So I think North Texas covers. I think they win by a couple of touchdowns, and you get an easy cover. Yeah, I I think no matter where this game is played, if you're favored by less than 10 points against Rice, take those points. Run with it. Make that bet. Well, shifting from our pocketbooks to our stomachs, John, let's think a little bit about what we're eating and drinking this week before we sign off for this, uh, this edition of the podcast. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to come right out and say it. I'm really excited for some lasagna. It's that type of year, time of year where it's really cold out and there's just something about having something just piping hot coming out of an oven that's just like stick to your ribs good. Um, you know, this is the time of year where you want to gorge up a bit on cheese. We've been in uh, the teens in terms of the temperature when I wake up in the mornings and head to campus. So I, I, I definitely want something that's gonna you know pack on the winter weight and keep me insulated and 
lasagna's been it for me. Yeah, I call me Garfield, but I'm I'm really <laughs> excited to put a pan together this week. Um, or for my wife too, because honestly, she makes a better lasagna than I do. So, and I, I you know, I worked in several Italian restaurants, so. I'd honestly, you know, whichever one of us makes it, I'd love, I'd, I'd love to eat some pasta and just some cheese all baked together and just a big old glue brick to to warm me up. That sounds incredible. Um, I'm also kind of leaning towards something that, you know, is a bit warmer and heartier. It, you know, there's been a bit of chill of the a chill in the air even down here on the Gulf Coast, Zach. So. I think the calendar's gotten to the point where it's chilly season, so I'm in oh, the mood yeah. to make a, a, a chili this weekend, so maybe on Friday night, get that ready and have it for dinner Friday, and then have it just sitting in the fridge to pour bowl after bowl on Saturday as I watch football. Um, I like mine a little spicier, so your traditional chili stuff, I like to add in um, you know, some jalapeno peppers, maybe even some, um, even some hotter peppers. If I can find some, I usually like to find someone who grows those kind of locally and see if I can get some of those, some habaneros and stuff like that to throw in. Um, we moved, we moved in the last few months and I had a garden kind of set up where I had some habanero peppers and stuff like that growing. I was so looking forward to having those uh, specifically to make chili. So I'm kind of disappointed. So I'm hoping to actually find some more homegrown peppers to kind of throw in it, add some hot sauce and stuff like that in there as well. And then, you know, I always like the oyster crackers on top with some cheese and all that. Uh, It's really tough to beat chili this time of the year, particularly because it's just the perfect dish. I think that you can just sit around and eat on and munch on throughout the day. Yeah. My wife has actually been talking about wanting some chili recently as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's something I'm throwing together midweek or even on Sunday after games are over. It, it's definitely the right time of year for that. So I, I, I hope you have a wonderful time putting that together. Um, in terms of drinks, what are you looking to pair with that chili? I don't know if it pairs with chili or not, man, but I, I'm pouring one out for, for Tua Tungavailoa this week. I've got a uh, an 18-year-old Glenn Levitt scotch in my pantry that I don't break out unless it's a special occasion or a more somber moment. So that's I've I've had my eyes on that uh, since kind of the injury news and everything. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a swig of that this weekend, pour a nice sip of that, and then I'm not actually gonna pour a little out for for Tua, uh, but imaginarily I'm going to because it's it's you know it's too good stuff to to pour down the drain or on the floor or something like that. So that's what Just I'm going. Pour it out straight to your mouth. There you go. <laughs> I'm with you there. No, I you know that's a there are moments in life when you have to. Uh, you have to pour a good glass in memory of a really great individual. And I think that's a really noble cause to be affecting this weekend. For me, I, you know, I, I can't remember if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, we ended up buying a bottle of spice rum for, to go with cider here, here in, in happy Valley and uh, since then, you know, I always like to keep vanilla Coke around the house. It's just one of my uh, simple addictions. I'm a, I'm a grad student, so caffeine is of a premium for me. And as much as I love original Coke, I've just become addicted to vanilla Coke in recent weeks, recent months, recent years, whatever. And uh, 
I, I find it just pairs really incredibly with Sailor Jerry Spice Rum. And uh, so that's that's what I'm going to be sipping on throughout the day as I uh, watch football and write about it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big vanilla Coke fan, too. I think it's an underrated drink. I, I always get disappointed when I go places and they don't have it. But shout out to Zaxby's. They're a little freestyle Coke machine because you can always get vanilla Coke at Zaxby's. Nice. Love it. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, I'm really excited for the upcoming week as we only have a fortnight of the regular season left to play in college football this year. Um, So I hope your teams have a wonderful weekend, unless they're playing mine, in which case I hope they have the most miserable weekend possible and you can just deal with it. On that note, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with you next Wednesday, uh, recording at a more regular time, so we should have uh, ongoing odds for you. But I hope you enjoyed this look at what it can look like from opening odds. And until we talk again, it's always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the Saturday Blitz podcast. Have a wonderful week.